Hello and welcome to this edition of Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. And in this episode, we will be discussing special education law and when may be the right time to contact an attorney. Of course, we want to start this with a disclaimer because what's more fun than a disclaimer at this time of the day? Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. This podcast is scheduled to broadcast in August of 2022, and information will be up to date as of that time. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes. While our hosts and guests are attorneys, the information presented is legal information and does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As a noted, I'm Clint Adams. I will be your host, and in this episode, we will talk with Melissa Kale about special education law. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Clint. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Where do you work at, and uh, what do you do there? I'm Melissa Kale. I am the supervising attorney in our Princeton Office of Legal Aid. I first started out working here in 2001 as a um, paralegal, and I did that for about three years. Then I left and I went to law school. And a couple of days after graduation, I started back at Legal Aid, and then I worked um, after that in our FAST program for almost 10 years, handling primary special education cases and, you know, some disability-related social security cases, you know, for children. And then four years ago, I became our supervising attorney in the Princeton office. So I even was a law student, too, in the summer uh, when I left. So I was fortunate enough to come back, you know, during the summers, too, and, and spend time here. So. Melissa is one of the few people that have held almost every role at Legal Aid of West Virginia, I believe. Let's talk about Princeton. You work in the Princeton office. What do you do for fun in Princeton? Um, We have um, some cool little, we're a small town, so um, everything is pretty close. Anything you want to do, you probably could walk and get there. In our downtown area, we have some pretty cool little shops and new restaurants um, that have opened. Um, We have, um, you know, some little art shops and some stores, a a coffee shop and Saturday night cruising. I don't know if you ever did that, Clint, when you were in high school, but that was a big thing we did many years ago in high school. We would just ride up and downtown and cruise and stop and have coffee at the coffee shop or go to the art stores or even the restaurants there. And You're bringing back some memories from me talking about cruising <laughs> around now, not so much when I was in high school, but when I, after I graduated from high school, I was in the Air Force and I was stationed in Las Vegas, Nevada. And at the age of 19, there's not much fun to do in Las Vegas, Nevada, except for cruise the Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> um, and that was a typical Friday night for me and my friends. But uh, Nonetheless, let's talk about something that's a little bit more relevant to the work that we're doing today. Just for a starter, if you haven't reviewed the first two podcasts that we did on this earlier about SAT team, special education eligibility, 504 plans and IEPs, I would encourage you to do that. This information will kind of, what we're going to talk about with Melissa today, will kind of build on that information. Dina talked about in a recent podcast about the importance of going back to the table when you have a dispute with the school district, trying to set back down, see if you can work out something with the school district. What we're going to talk about today is when we've gone back to the table and we've been unsuccessful, though. So 
um, Melissa, what do we do at the beginning whenever you find out you've gone through the SAT meeting, you've gone through eligibility? Let's start with the eligibility. Let's say the school district says that the student is not eligible for special education services and you as the parent believe they should be. What steps do you take then? The parent does have a few options. And um, one would be that the parent could request an independent educational evaluation that would be performed um, by an evaluator that is not employed by the school district. It is free to the parent. And these, these evaluations are pretty helpful a lot of times in gathering, um, you know, some new information or, you know, other areas maybe that were not evaluated in the beginning. And the school would have 10 days to either consent to the evaluation or file a due process hearing request and um, present a case that the evaluation is not necessary because all the information was gathered in the previous evaluation. But the parent does have the right to do that, this evaluation. The other thing is the parent can provide some suggestions on possible evaluators. The school would provide um, some suggestions and then they would work together to come up with an evaluator. Um, the travel expenses would also be reimbursable to the parent. So that's one option. Um, another option is a parent can get their own independent evaluation at their expense. The IEP team, they have to consider the evaluation and it, but it doesn't have to be, it's not mandatory that it has to be, um, you know, considered as this is automatically entitling the child to eligibility. So let's talk about that first option where you're going to ask for an independent evaluator and basically you're asking the school district to pay for that. Uh, do the parties have to agree on who who that evaluator is or who has the final say on that? The party should work toward, um, you know, coming up with an evaluator that is agreeable to both sides. That's not always possible, but ultimately the school would, you know, have that decision if you cannot reach that decision. Now, would this evaluator be someone that's treating the child on a daily basis? It could be, um, you know, especially when you're in areas like um, where we live, sometimes there's not a lot of options for evaluators. So it could possibly be that, but it definitely has to be an evaluator that is, um, you know, trained in this area. And this is something that they would be qualified to evaluate on. So you try this reevaluation, then if the evaluator says that they believe that person, that the student is eligible for special education services, then does that mean you go forward with the next process in the IEP 504 or other special education services? Um, you would still have an eligibility meeting and determine whether or not, based on this new information, maybe it has showed, um, you know, some reasons why um, the student is eligible. But if the school still cannot agree and the guardian cannot agree on eligibility, then the parent would have other options, and those would be legal options that they could um, pursue filing a, a complaint or requesting mediation, some of those areas of dispute resolution. Okay, so let's talk about mediation. What is mediation and how does it work? And mediation, I think, is a great tool. It actually, I think, is really good when the parties can meet and have an impartial person. And, and this mediation is not a cost to the parent, too. So that's another good key is that the mediator is trained and, you know, and qualified in helping resolve disputes because sometimes there's just some communication barriers. I, I truly believe that the school and the, the guardian both want the same thing. They want um, the child to, you know, receive appropriate supports and an education. Education, and sometimes the mediator is just going to help, um, you know, kind of le 
let each side listen to e each other and kind of try to resolve the dispute. That it's all voluntary. Both sides would have to agree to mediation, that they would get the assistance from someone who is neutral and, you know, and not involved in the case to try to resolve these these issues. Now, let's suppose for some reason the, the parent or the school district doesn't want to agree to mediation. What are the other options? And a parent could file a state complaint or a due process complaint. So there are two options that would be a decision that would be made or, or are those options that are applicable in certain situations? And um, yeah, a decision would be made on those cases and the state complaint would have to be filed within one year of the incident or when the parent knew that this issue was something that they could file a complaint on when they became aware of the issue. That's one year and that actually that process um, is an investigation by the State Department of Education. And, you know, these timelines are actually pretty quick. The investigations, you know, are there, there's a guideline for how long the investigation takes place. Um, it can be extended um, if necessary and appropriate. But the due process complaint, there's actually a two-year time period. So you have a little longer um, to file your, your due process complaint. It's actually a hearing. Um, so, you know, you would want to go in, you know, being prepared with evidence and, you know, with witnesses and those kind of, it's like, a, it's just like a formal hearing and the timeline's pretty quick. They, they like to have these resolved. They look at a 45 day timeline and they actually have resolution meetings um, because the goal is to, to resolve the issues to the satisfaction, um, you know, of, of both parties. So, so that's, you know, gives you some buy-in and it really encourages you to work together, which is always good for the student. Let's talk about each process then. It sounds like that your first decision is going to be which kind of a complaint are you going to file, whether you're going to file a state complaint that would be then investigated by the Department of Education or a due process complaint. So let's talk about the state complaint option then. I guess the first question would be how do you initiate that? The good thing is on the Department of Education, the West Virginia Department of Education website, uh, they do have forms uh, for uh, parents and guardians to use, or you know, even attorneys can use these forms if they would like to, or you can use your own. These forms are really good because they tell you what you have to include. Because if you don't include the right stuff, your complaints can be dismissed. Um, so there are forms on the Department of Ed website of what um, you know you would include. You would have a lot of identifying information about the student um, you would want to include the issues and you know other things that would be helpful like uh, proposed resolution um, on these issues. So once you go to the State Department of Education website you get the form for a state complaint you print that out you fill it out then what do you do with it? Um, you would file it with the Department of Education and also you are required to serve a copy to the other side as well. So when you say file, is there a place that you have to take that to or do you just mail it to them? How does that work? Um, yes, you can mail it or you can take it, um, either one. And then you send a copy to the school district. What's the next step in that process? What would happen then is um, the department that the internal department at the Department of Education would start the investigation. That would mean they would contact um, the school district. They would contact the parent. They would try to gather any um, records or reports and evaluations. And then they would conduct their own investigation. For example, if you um, had said that you were the guardian and you did not get appropriate notice of an IEP meeting. Then they would start looking at the file and looking at records and they would, you know, conduct a, a thorough investigation and look at the issues that are in the complaint and uh, come up with a decision. 
So then what happens when they come up with a decision after they complete their investigation? They submit a finding and they provide both sides the finding um, of what their investigation was. And they're very thorough reports. They tell everything in there that they've looked at, what they've done and who they've talked to. And and they definitely, um, you know, share a, a pretty thorough finding and, and tell you how they come up with their decision. So let's say they make a finding that says the school didn't appropriately determine special education eligibility. What's the next step then when that happens? They also do in their findings like recommendations, like um, corrective action or things that they would like to see happen, whether it's training or education, that they will, um, you know, kind of give you some some guidelines of what they would like to happen and timelines of um, when these things need to be done as well. And are those mandated then if the, the investigation uncovers something? Is that something that the Department of Education requires the school district to do or are they just suggestions? And require. Okay. And then let's say that the Department of Education conducts a, a, an investigation through a state complaint and they say, no, the school district was right here. What happens next? And um, what happens next is um, one thing that they do have in the policy is you cannot file a due process um, like taking it to a different level if it's already been decided on. So that is one thing that they will look at is, um, you know, that's why it's good to really speak to an attorney and see what process is best for you. You know, that to me is, is something really important because um, what you file actually can determine the outcome. So I would definitely encourage someone to talk to an attorney to see, you know, which one they should file because, you know, um, it is different. Um, you know, what as far as like, you know, if you want a hearing, uh, you would definitely want to speak with an attorney about whether a due process hearing is more appropriate for you. So let's talk about the due process process. We've looked at the state complaint, which is in essence an investigation is conducted by the Department of Education. What is the due process complaint? Is there an investigation when it relates to that? Um, no, it actually is more of a formal hearing. A parent, uh, you know, guardian, an adult student, or even the school district can file a due process. And there's also a form on the Department of Ed website, and you can kind of see what they're looking at. But one thing that I referred to earlier is um, that you are required to do um, some proposed resolution. And so the forms can be, you know, pretty overwhelming, I think, for someone that doesn't do this routinely. So I definitely think that you would want to talk to an attorney or an advocate and get some advice and help, um, you know, with the forms and the process, because the process is a formal hearing and the school district can have an attorney at this hearing. Um, and you would definitely, I think, would benefit from having an attorney to represent Present you too because there's a lot of rules like you know in the law and guidelines and even on hearings you watch at home you know you definitely have to follow certain rules there's certain questions you can ask certain timelines of which you would have to produce evidence um, and witnesses so I mean I definitely think it would be very challenging uh, to go in you know and, and represent yourself in these cases. So when we're talking about a due process, uh, we're actually talking about a, a formal hearing. Who presides over this hearing? Is it Judge Judy or somebody else? Uh, no, it's a, we um, refer to them as hearing officers, and they are impartial hearing officers that serve on a rotational basis, um, and they are licensed attorneys that have a lot of training, you know, or experience in special education. They definitely, um, you know, I've seen their uh, hearing officers, and they do a great job. They are really familiar with special education law and know the law very well. 
So these officers preside over this due process hearing. Then what what happens after the hearing? Do, do they issue a judgment? Do they issue a decision? What happens? Yes, they do issue a decision, um, and you know it's it's an order. They issue their their findings and their order. They send it out to both sides, and they're pretty long. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them. If you ever have some spare time and you want to read, you can go on the Department of Ed website, and some of these uh, findings I've seen fifty and seventy five pages. Um, and they will tell you your rights. Um, after that, they um, you know, if you want to appeal it, or you know, if you don't, they you know also tell you you know that too. So once the hearing officer has issued an opinion, what are the appeal rights that party has and are those the same rights that the school district has? Yes, you can appeal to um, state or federal court if you, you know, are unsatisfied with the decision of the hearing officer. Uh, one other thing, too, that the process requires that I didn't mention is when you do file a due process complaint, um, it's pretty quickly, you know, it goes fast. That's why I also think it's good to consult with an attorney. But one thing that the process does encourage is a resolution meeting that would happen pretty quickly, um, you know, in 15 days, actually. Now, if both sides wait that and say they don't want to meet again, they don't have to. Um, but that's always a good time to this resolution meeting to even see if there's some issues you can work out. Even if you can't work out all of the issues, that definitely um, anything you're able to work out um, before the hearing or any issues you can resolve and not have a hearing, um, that's, you know, always beneficial too. But but that's kind of, you know, the process is, you know, any kind of settlement or resolution is definitely encouraged in the process. So what would be the benefit to having that resolution meeting? Presumably you filed due process based on either an eligibility meeting or some other meeting that you had with the school that you disagreed with. I mean, all the parties have already kind of been at the table. What's the purpose of a re resolution meeting and, and how would that be different? At this process, if the um, parent um, bring, or guardian brings in an attorney, then um, the school district can bring an attorney as well. Um, and I think they're very beneficial. I've sat in many of those. Um, and I definitely think sometime, you know, the goal in these meetings is to, um, you know, kind of move forward, see what we can do to help the student. Um, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, having um, two people um, there that, you know, are kind of, you know, Neutral and kind of can talk about the law and talk about, you know, what, you know, is appropriate and what is not appropriate under the law, I think, is kind of just having two extra people on the outside come in. I think that's pretty helpful, too. And one other thing I would say is, uh, as an attorney, we live in conflict, right? And and we, as an attorney, I'm, I'm, I've been in these situations personally, and I've been just as emotional as anybody else may be. Uh, and sometimes if this resolution meeting's happening a, a week or two after the last meeting, um, maybe some of the tempers may have cooled on both sides. Uh, is that something you've seen in your experience? Oh, definitely. And even some of these uh, meetings, because this complaint here doesn't even have to be filed until two years. And um, I would never encourage somebody to wait two years, obviously. But a lot of times, some of these cases, time has passed. And like you said, emotions can definitely cool off. And, um, you know, and I totally understand that. I'm also, um, you know, a mother to a child that has an IEP and has been um, in special education. He's getting ready to be in 11th grade. So I can definitely understand, um, you know, the sides of parents to where, and the school district as well, you know, it can get tough. These decisions aren't easy. They're, they're very tough decisions on trying to decide, um, you know, what's best for the student, but also the other students in the school as well.
So we talked about what would happen if we had eligibility concerns. Is that the same process you would have if there were other disputes, maybe about the way the IEP was being um, utilized or maybe services that that a parent feels should be included in an IEP or a 504 plan that wasn't included? Would this process be similar or what would be the differences? And yes, it would definitely be similar. And especially if you disagree with you know, certain educational um, services that are provided or maybe supports and therapies, you know, this would definitely be the same process. Now, there is a different process. There is also available to you what we call an expedited due process complaint, and these are primarily in discipline case, well, they are in discipline cases. Um, if you are changing the student's placement because of discipline reasons, the calendar is actually pretty, it, it's fast. It's an expedited uh, calendar for these um, due process hearings. Um, you would definitely, you would have your resolution meeting in seven days on these um, and then a quicker hearing. Now, is, is there also an opportunity to maybe have an IEP with a neutral person? We talked a little bit about mediation. I think that's also would be one of the options if you had a dispute over an IEP. Are there ways to have somebody that may be more neutral help work together with the parent and the school district to come up with an IEP? Yes, and um, you also have available to you um, facilitated IEPs. I've had families that I've worked with that have really liked the facilitated IEP process as well. And just having that neutral person in that can, you know, take a second look at things and make suggestions and, and you know, help, is very helpful, I think, in a lot of cases too. A lot of times, I think, that the, based on my understanding, the disputes between a parent and a, and a school district come about when there are behavioral concerns. Maybe there's disruptive behavior, maybe there's aggressive behaviors or things of that nature. Has that been your experience as well? Uh, yes, and that during the 10, almost 10 years I was in FAST, that primarily was the cases that I handled a lot of. And I think the reason why I think these cases are so challenging, because you want everybody safe. You want the students safe, you want staff safe, and you want other students safe as well. And um, so I think these, you know, there's no magic answer to these cases, and they have to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis and looking at all the facts in each case. So I definitely think these are, are challenging cases. Cases and um, you know these are the hard ones I think. How do you deal with that when the when the behavior may be related to a disability? Maybe it's a bipolar disorder or some other type of a, a mental disability that's that's causing those behavioral things. What are what's the process there? And the process is definitely to provide positive behavior supports um, and try to determine why is this behavior occurring. Um, you know, for you know, a lot of children, my son, I'll use for example, he's nonverbal. Um, so for him, it's a little harder to figure out. He's trying to communicate with us sometimes on what his, um, you know, behavior. He's he don't know how to communicate because physically he cannot, um, you know, tell us what his behavior is. So so that's what the goal is: is to determine what is this behavior and what is the student trying to communicate through this behavior, and then trying to replace that behavior with positive behavior supports. And um, you know, and suspect. Expansions and exclusions should definitely be a last resort that we should work toward providing positive supports first. So we talk about those suspensions and other forms of discipline, maybe an in-school, out-of-school suspension. Can a student with a disability still receive that level of discipline, maybe an out-of-school suspension? Yes, yes. And um, 
What the key issue you always look for in discipline cases is, um, is there what we call the legal term, and I know uh, sometimes I use it these, but change of placement is what we look at. And a change of placement is when special protections and procedures would kick into place. But um, for 10 days, um, a student, even one with a disability, um, can be disciplined just like any other student, and they would not receive services during that um, 10 days unless a general education student would be getting um, services. They would get the same services that a student um, in general education would receive. And then you talk about this change of placement. What what exactly do you mean by that? Because that sounds like a, a fancy uh, jargon that, that's only understood by a few people. Yes, it is. It is. That's why I said I hate using that <laughs> one. Um, but what you look at is, um, you know, if you are going to remove the student from their pl educational placement for more than 10 days, and that can be consecutive days or it can be non-consecutive days, um, you know, over a school year. If it, here's another legal word we use in an educational word is if it's a pattern of behavior and um, you know if it, which is similar behavior then these are what we call change of placement so if it's more than um, 10 days consecutive or if it's a pattern of non-consecutive days um, over a school year then there's special uh, protections and procedures that would need to be applied and followed um, so that the student can still receive an appropriate education. So if you had a special needs child or a child that's receiving special education services um, and there something happens at school, maybe they get into a fight at school and the typical punishment is three days out of school suspension, for example, if there's a fight, then that student would receive that same level of discipline despite the fact that there was an IEP. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, you do. Unless there had been uh, more than one fight and there had been a, a pattern of fights during that year and there had been more than 10 days, non-consecutive days, then the school would need to have a special meeting that we call a manifestation meeting. Now, when we talk about that 10 days, is that per semester or is that per the school year? Per school year. Now, let's talk about a manifestation meeting. What is a manifestation meeting? A manifestation meeting is similar to an IEP meeting. Um, it's kind of normally the same parties that attend the IEP meeting, um, but you kind of, you know, have specific questions that you want to look at. You want to look at, you know, the um, behavior. You want to talk about it. You want to get any kind of records or reports from that behavior incident. You want to gather all the records, um, you know, the, the child's discipline records to see is this something that's happened, you know, more than once? Is, you know, this a pattern behavior. Um, you want to look at the student's exceptionality and, you know, what their diagnoses are. And then you, you know, you ask two questions. One is, did the student's disability um, have a relationship to this conduct that they're being disciplined for? Um, and you look and see if it had a direct or a substantial relationship to it. And then the second question you had asked was the conduct that was caused uh, by the student a direct result of the school district's failure to implement the IEP. You ask those two questions and the team looks at all the information and reports and data. Um, and if the answer to either one of those questions is yes, then it's determined to be a manifestation um, of the student's disability. So what happens if we have a student that, that has trouble with 
their peers and maybe is getting in fights, but it is in fact, there's that relationship to their disability, or even if it's a product of the school district's failure to follow the IEP, what steps happen next? If it is considered as the, a manifestation of the student's disability, and the student would have to return to their placement, but and the goal is to, you know, try to prevent these things from happening. You know, looking at another one is a functional behavior assessment, and I really love a functional behavior assessment, a good one, because I think it's a very valuable tool and that, you know, if it's um, looking at data, looking at um, evaluations and having an evaluator that's experienced and has expertise in this area to try to see what is happening, what's going on, you know, what is the student trying to communicate to us, and it really increases the chances of trying to prevent the, the behavior in the future or to provide the supports um, to allow, um, you know, it not to happen or to, you know, not let anyone get hurt or anything like that. So um, the functional behavior assessment, you would do one if it is a manifestation um, and you would develop a behavior intervention plan if one has not already been developed or if there is one, you would review it and see is, you know, it working? Is it not working? Can we change it? Can we tweak it? What do we need to do different um, to prevent these behaviors from happening, uh, you know, in the future? Now, what happens if it's determined that the action that happened is not a manifestation of the disability and that the disability really has no relationship then to to the actions that the student engaged in? What happens then? And then at that time, the student would receive, you know, discipline. They could be placed in an alternative educational setting um, and, you know, could be punished um, just like a student without a disability. However, you would still need, the school would still need to work with the student to ensure that their IEP goals that had been developed by the IEP team was being followed and that the student was making progress toward those goals. Now, there are some special circumstances, too, where um, even if it is a manifestation, there are some special circumstances where a student can be removed from their educational placement and not returned, even if it is a manifestation of their disability, um, if it involves serious bodily injury or weapons or drugs or any of those special circumstances, a student can be removed for 45 days. And then they would be placed in an alternative education setting. Is that what would happen? And yes, normally that's what happens. Yes. So I guess the, the long and short of it is even if we're removing a student from the general education classroom or from, from other aspects of the classroom, we're still going to be, the school district's still going to be required to educate that student somehow. Is that correct? Uh, yes, you would still work, um, you know, on the IEP goals. So what are some of the ways that you may see that? Let's let's take a situation, as you talked about, that maybe you have a, a dangerous student who has made some sort of threats or there's um, something that the school district is concerned about the safety of the school campus. And they say, you know, we don't want to have the, the student on, in here. We're going to do a 45-day expulsion. What kind of education would the student receive during that time? Um, I have seen um, some supports put in place and um, say the student maybe had in their IEP that they were getting, um, you know, uh, their tests read orally to them or they were getting pull out one on one um, tutoring services or um, speech therapy, you know, those kind of things. They would still receive those in that alternative setting. Where is this alternative setting? Is there a, a room called alternative setting or where is this uh, physically? 
Uh, it can be different places. Um, the IEP team would make that decision. Some counties do have an alternative school where, um, you know, a student can be placed at. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it could be appropriate for a student to be, you know, at home or in a hospital, especially if their behaviors are being caused for medical reasons, like maybe a new medication or um, some kind of behavior that a medical um, doctor or, a, you know, psychiatrist is trying to um, contain and, you know, and kind of observe. So it can be in a variety of places. That's the thing I think we you know, stress as advocates and special ed attorneys is what works for one student does not always work for another. And that's the goal of the IEP and the goal of the team too, is to look at this student and what works best for this student. Um, and I think that goes to even for the alternative um, setting for the education. Melissa, I thank you so much for your time here. I think, uh, I guess the theme of today would be that a lot of these things are pretty complex and you probably want to speak with an attorney about your specific situation as this as this unfolds. Would you agree with that? Um, yes, I definitely would agree. Um, and I always say that that's what happened to me. My son, my, after his first IEP meeting that I attended, I was so overwhelmed and it was so confusing. And I felt like I knew the least about special education in the whole room. And there was about 15 of us in there. Um, and I always say he helped me choose my career. And that's what made me want to learn a lot about special education because it is very complex. And, and there's so many laws that come into play, county, state, you know, county policies, state law and federal law and, and it can be overwhelming um, and so you know speaking from my own experience it does help to have an advocate or attorney or even other parents there um, to help you know share experiences and kind of you know help with processes. Well, Melissa, as you know, I have also had to seek that services um, whenever we had my cousin staying with us as she was a teenager. Um, we ran into some of these same issues um, in working with the school district and some disagreements about what was in her best interest and what were some of the best ways to educate her. And I, like you, can understand as, as I mean, I was a fairly experienced attorney at the time that I'm sitting down with the school district, and I understood how intimidating that process can be and how important it is. Uh, the advocacy that we do through our programs here at Legal Aid of West Virginia. So I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you sharing your story with us. And uh, I thank you for, for all of the work that you do on behalf of our clients. Thank you, Clint. Thanks for having me. If you'd like more information about the topics discussed today, you can visit the West Virginia Department of Education website at wvde.us or on Legal Aid of West Virginia's website at legalaidwv.org. This has been a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.